It is estimated that the F-35 Lightning II Joint Strike Fighter Program will cost over $1.7 trillion to buy, operate, and sustain. That makes it the United States Department of Defense most expensive weapon system program ever. As such, getting the most return out of each F-35 fighter for the DOD is of the highest priority. From the development, manufacturing, and sustaining phases, there is a concerted focus on F-35 lifetime and doing whatever possible to extend it. Active infrared thermography is one method being used to detect defects at the smallest level as part of the F-35 uh, Joint Strike Fighter program. However, beyond jet fighters, automobile and component manufacturers, electronics and semiconductor developers, aerospace companies, and battery developers are just a few of the industries that are using active thermography, non-destructive testing technologies and techniques to optimize product performance. In this episode of the Thermal Review, we explain the difference between passive and active thermography and introduce the different, te different techniques for performing active thermography, non-destructive testing. Marcus. Yep. Good day. How are you? Good. Good to be with you again in this uh, episode four of our podcast series. Yeah, hard to believe we're already on episode four. I know. It's 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 great, though, uh, that uh, we're able to uh, pull this together. And so far, it seems like the feedback we're getting is positive about uh, our discussion points so far. I'm really excited about today's topic. I, I don't know how you feel about it. Yeah, very excited because it's uh, it's a really interesting one, I think. In fact, uh, for those of you who have dialed in uh, and are viewing the video of this podcast, we're sitting outside of the Moby Firm uh, non-destructive testing lab. And you can kind of peer in there and you'll see uh, different apparatus, cameras, excitation sources, uh, displays uh, that are utilized as part of the, the lab here at Moby Firm. And, and we'll talk probably a little more about that later. Uh, Marcus, maybe as, as, as some background, you can tell us a little bit about, I, I mean, I know the answer to this already, but for our listeners, your history uh, as, it, as it pertains to infrared non-destructive testing. Yes. So <clears throat> as probably our uh, viewers know, we, we have been in business since 1999, almost 23 years, starting in October. And uh, we have been doing thermal imaging um, shortly after we, we started the company through our connection with FLIR. And then we were actually introduced to a partner company in Germany um, doing um, NDT test systems. And, and they were looking for a partner and we, um, you know, we kind of greeted each other and, and learned more about that technology. Up until then, we were just doing uh, passive thermography, which we're gonna be explaining further a little bit later. And um, so this active thermography method, um, which is non-destructive testing or one of the possible uh, non-destructive um, testing methods, which there are many of, uh, changes the game a little bit um, because we're um, actively exciting <clears throat> a part that is uh, typically what we call uh, in equilibrium, right? So it's it's essentially cold or it's at room temperature um, on all ends. So if you were just to point a thermal camera at it, you would just see a kind of like a gray mush. There's nothing uh, of, of interest there um, to to exploit. Uh, to change that is uh, to just excite the part thermally on some level. And this could be done with different uh, different excitation methods and, and, and essentially uh, provoke some sort of a thermal response from the material and also going you know into the depth of the material and um, creating a thermal wave on the surface that penetrates deep into the material and comes back out of the surface and that we can kind of discern uh, changes in the material densities or uh, uniformities in there, you know, mm -hmm. find, find defects such as uh, delaminations and cracks and voids and, and foreign material inclusions and all those kind of things that are, you know, undesirable in the manufacturing process, especially of very expensive uh, aircraft components. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I, I teased a little bit that I know the history with regards to MobiTherm being introduced to this infrared non-destructive technology or this active thermography because 
I was, at that time, I was actually working for a very large uh, thermal imaging camera manufacturer, in fact, the largest commercial uh, infrared camera manufacturer. And we, as a company, uh, and I still believe this, built the best infrared cameras uh, on the market. Uh, however, there were applications that required just a little more than what we could provide as a manufacturer to tease out the defect, if you will. And we had heard about this infrared non-destructive testing or, or active thermography, and, and we had actually dabbled in it ourselves and, and tried to become experts at it so we could solve our customer, uh, customers' uh, problems. But quite honestly, it, 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 it was beyond what we could do because it required a certain level of focus and uh, it was it, it, in some ways it, it was almost like an art and and we found as a manufacturer that we just could not do this directly ourselves so uh, interestingly enough i i knew marcus because of a a, a a friend that we had in common who actually came to work for us and um, marcus seemed like the perfect organization to uh, introduce to, to this German organization to, to, to learn this capability. So we would have someone as a manufacturer who we could refer customers to so that their problems could, could be solved beyond what we could do with passive uh, technologies. And what was this like? Oh, how long ago was this? You and I, Marcus and I actually- 15, 17 years ago. Yeah, we actually made the trip together. <laughs> right. Uh, as a side story, one day flew into Germany, where we fly, so I can't even remember. Hamburg. Hamburg. Yeah. Rented a car, drove out to this German supplier, got spun up on their capabilities and technology, hopped back in the car, drove back to the airport, and came home. Yeah. And we're both based, well, he's in California. I was I was in Seattle at the time. So yeah. we're both West Coast. Anyways, right. kind of a funny joke. But not sure why we did that on one day. <laughs> I, I'm still not sure either. For some reason, we felt this urgency. we got to get out there and learn it. But, but there was, the thing is, or I guess the point that I wanted to make is there, there was a need in the market for this capability, for this technology. And there were some uh, new advancements in uh, infrared non-destructive testing, specifically lock-in uh, uh, technique that we'll get into that nobody really had. Right. And, but the customers had uh, been introduced to it. They understood based upon this lock-in technology used in other sciences, how effective this could be for, again, teasing out these very small defects uh, or imperfections in certain targets. And there was nobody out there. So MobiTherm came on board, spun up, and, and now you guys are like one of the leaders here, I guess we are, since, uh, in this lock-in capabilities here uh, in, in the United States, which, I mean, that's kind of a long history. Right, right. It, it, it is also, I mean, it's A, it's, it's a very fascinating uh, technology with, with a lot of promise and capability. Um, there's still, um, even though it, it has been around on an academic level, I think for 25, 30 years already, um, but the adoption has been still very slow in the industry um, because there wasn't, uh, you know, there weren't that many companies out there. There wasn't that much expertise out there, and and also the the standards kind of limped behind, right? So there's the ASNT, the American Association for Non-Destructive Testing, and so since um, the adoption was so low, there wasn't a huge push towards uh, getting standards out for that technology. And the de facto standard in the industry still kind of today is uh, ultrasonic testing, ultrasonic NDT or UT. Um, and um, one challenge with that is that the workforce is trained and certified uh, in that industry, in the non-destructive testing world on UT. And so it's not as simple as just purchasing an NDT system of a different kind. And that's true for anything, whether you switching from UT to X-rays or magnetic particle testing or whatever else the case may be. Um, the same things apply, the same rules apply for, for thermography. So you have to also consider training up your workforce and, and getting them recertified mm -hmm. on a different technique. And they have to also do these continuous educational units. So they have to keep up to speed and put so and so many hours in a year um, to go to conferences and, and, and use that equipment and document all those things. So, that comes with it. Um, and what also was so far kind of a hindrance on the uh, adoption side, I think, was also that the, the cost of the mm -hmm. cameras were so exorbitantly high, where we now have um, solutions that drop 
way in price and, and make this technology more accessible, especially also with the advent of, of uh, the use of, of uh, thermoplastics and, and carbon composites versus metals. For metals, we always need the high-end cooled cameras, high-speed, very expensive equipment, whereas for the, for the thermally slower responding materials such as carbon composites, which are kind of taking over the metals and replacing them slowly in the aerospace industries and other industries like racing, yeah. automotive and so forth, um, it becomes more feasible to use um, less expensive camera equipment such as these microbolometers, uncooled cameras, which then significantly uh, impacts the system price and, and makes this um, more accessible. You know? Yeah, it's definitely opened up additional applications, new markets, industries, and, and solving problems that couldn't be solved previously with passive demography, which again, by way of review, passive demography is no excitation, right? You're just looking at what the environment is producing right. uh, thermally. Right, the self-heating of something. Like if you're looking at an electrical motor that's running, it's self-heating, right? It has heat losses and, and that creates a thermal contrast on the motor, right? Yeah. Some parts are warmer than others and that's your contrast essentially in the thermal image where it's not present if you just have a piece of material lying around. So mo most of the thermography that people are probably familiar with is, uh, from an industrial perspective, that is, is let's say the example of uh, inspecting a substation with a, ha a handheld infrared camera and and passively, if you will, scanning the, the targets. Could be disconnect switches, transformers, breakers. They're all heating kind of on their own yeah. or not heating on their own kind of naturally. You're not sending any other additional uh, energy to those targets or at those targets. Right, yeah. right. Whereas active, as you described earlier, I thought quite well, about this wave, maybe you can describe that again. Right, so there's different methods um, that we can go into further later, but uh, there's, there's what you mentioned before, a lock-in method that comes from the old radio days. Um, the idea there or the invention around this was that there were radio waves that were out there and people were trying to receive these radio signals from a very far distance. And the issue typically was if the radio signal was at the noise floor, or below the noise floor, you couldn't extract that signal anymore. Mm. It was just gone non-recoverable. And somebody, and I don't know the name right now, came up with uh, the lock-in tomography, I'm sorry, not, not lock-in, the lock-in technique rather, in the radio wave uh, industry, if you will. And they were uh, basically saying, we know what the excitation frequency is or the carrier frequency. Since we know that, why don't we just look for signals that match that frequency? You know, if it's your radio station 98.7 megahertz or something, you could essentially lock into that signal because you the carrier frequency is known. Even if the signal is buried below the noise floor, you could then amplify only a frequency around, you know, basically create a, a bandpass filter that's very, very narrow and only amplify over and over again that signal. And eventually what you will see over many, many cycles that signal will grow above the noise floor and now you can actually extract it and, and do that. And, and we're doing the same thing on the thermography side of things. We're doing this though on a pixel by pixel basis. It's a, it's a little bit of a mind warp to get your head around this, but it's done on a pixel by pixel basis in the thermal camera with a heat stimulus. So we know the frequency of excitation on the heat stimulus and uh, we can essentially extract changes uh, at the rate of heat that is below a noise floor camera. And these cameras are already extremely sensitive. Those cooled cameras, they can be you know, 0 0.018 yeah. degrees uh, temperature changes. So with lock-in, we can actually, so that's millikelvin range. We can, we can go into the microkelvin range and pull signals out. So that gives us the ability to, what we say, it, it's almost uh, thermal radiography. It's, it, we can literally, you know, indirectly see inside the material that's happening, even though it's really just all manifesting itself on the surface. Yeah. But we're able to pull that information out now because we know the frequency of stimulation. Locking is an amazing technology. And again, that was one of the things that drove us to, you know, create this partnership years ago uh, because uh, the market for, for industry and customers was very interested because they had, well, they were familiar with it from uh, uh, electrical radio wave analysis, like you were yeah, describing. Electrical engineering, essentially. Yeah. yeah, and then learning that, oh, we can apply the math. 
the lock in that, if you will, to thermography and then and tease out again because you're reducing that noise level yeah. to, to to nil. Yeah, almost. it's amazing. Um, I'd like I'd like to uh, talk a little bit about excitation sources and because the, there's various out there. We talked about right. lock-in, right? And, and and there's sources for that. I'm wondering if you're if you're dialed in visibly, you probably notice there's a, uh, an additional chair here with us, and um, we actually have a guest uh, for today. And you mentioned something earlier about training workforce. Well, you have expertise and folks who are trained up uh, in 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 uh, active thermography here at Moldyville. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. You want to introduce our guest? Should we Absolutely. invite him on? Come on in, Nathan. <laughs> uh, hello. Thanks for having me on today. Good yeah. to have you here. Welcome. Yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm Nathan, and you can see the amazing lab we have behind us. Basically, that's kind of my uh, playground where <laughs> customers are sending us all kinds of different parts. Um, and sometimes, you know, they know what defect you're looking for. Sometimes that's the question. Um, and so we have many different excitation sources, methods, post-processing techniques that we use back there to basically uh, help the customer dial into their specific needs. And we can get more into that. Um, so, yeah, I'm doing the feasibility studies back here. Um, you know, all the methods that you have basically just mentioned already, we basically employ that back here in real time. So let's let's back up a little bit. What what let me ask you I have the IRNDT experts here now, so this is awesome. Uh, I'm just I'm a passive expert. Uh, backing up just a little bit, what what are the different um, maybe well let's talk about techniques and then excitation sources. So you've been we've already talked about lock-in. What are what are some other techniques for infrared non-destructive testing? Right. What have you learned? Yeah. <laughs> no pressure, David. Yeah, quiz that. Uh, so, so it's kind of the principle, like you mentioned a little bit. I'm going to back up a little bit. Um, we want to get a heat wave into the part. Okay. It's kind of a call and response relationship. So we're basically issuing a call in the form of this heat signal, and we're reading with the thermal camera how that part is responding. The lock-in is that frequency element where you're periodically exciting it. You're basically okay. doing like waves and you have that uh, frequency component to the analysis. Um, other methods include basically like a simple on-off excitation that's referred to as step thermography or transient thermography, where you're basically, it's almost like, you know, you can think of it like a lock-in, but just for one cycle. Okay. You're basically just heating it up and cooling it off and that you know, whole cycle of heat up, the, the, you know, heat up and cool down phase um, can be very insightful. Um, you can read a lot, you know, about the material and what's going on under the surface just from that. Um, and then even like the more condensed version of that, you can do a flash thermography, where basically that whole process of getting the heat wave in, you can treat it like an instantaneous excitation because you have like a big flash going off, like, you know, almost like picture day at school, except you know, way hotter. Okay. Um, you're flashing apart, and then you're watching that cool down like immediately afterwards. It's sort of the same principle, where basically, as the material is cooling down, subsurface differences, you know, density variations and uh, defects, things like that, are starting to show up once that heat wave comes back, and you can start to see it with the IR camera. Um, you know, there are, there are other uh, methods, you know, that but it's basically that that core principle of uh, reading the response from whatever heat input you're putting into. Okay, awesome. And so, uh, how, let, let's talk now excitation sources. So we talked about these techniques that are lock-in, transient, and then pulse or flash. flash. Well, um, yeah. So how, how, what are the different ways you introduce heat? Yeah, so there are, you know, a lot of ways you can get creative. Um, what's important basically is like the repeatability. Um, you want to do this scientifically. Um, so, you know, in theory, you just got to heat it up somehow. Yeah. Um, you could even theoretically use like a heat gun or something. But the problem is, you know, once you start doing stuff like that, it's just a little hard to wrangle. So common excitation sources can include halogen lamps. 
Um, these are just basically you turn on an array or a single lamp source and that light signal actually has a lot of heat. If you hold your hand in front of it, you know, it starts getting pretty toasty pretty quickly. Um, you know, you can excite things uh, with vibration. So this is not really, um, you know, the, the vibration itself isn't, you know, producing heat. It's the friction um, that that, you know, as that vibration wave travels through the material, certain things start to, you know, rub together and heat up. And you can see that with a thermal camera, you know, you can do induction heating. That's basically using like a magnetic coil, almost like your induction stovetop. Um, to basically, if you have a conductive material, it starts to excite that heat it up. So, I mean, there are so many different ways. I mean, I don't know if I missed any of the... How do you do, Marcus? Big ones. Yeah, very good. I mean, yeah, we're getting into the more exotic excitation sources. It's mainly material dependent, as you said. Exactly. Like if you have something yeah. metal, we would choose different excitation sources than if it's non-metals and those kind of things. Really, it really depends on, on how the material responds to a stimulus. The, the other things, I mean, there's some really exotic ones. You could use microwaves. Mm. You can use uh, lasers, which we do on semiconductors sometimes, which are famous. And I mean, you can go as simple as holding an ice bag behind something and actually cool things down rather than heating things up. But that's really not a, a very, very scientific version of it. But I've, I've done that in on some parts before kind of event. So yeah, it really is material dependent. I would say um, in aerospace, 80% uh, of all applications are either halogen or flash. Mm -hmm. okay. That's like the majority of, of the applications that we cover. It's, it's very repeatable, basically. Gotcha. And is that, and that's because the materials typically used in the aerospace are. If it's if it's metal, we typically use flash, but we can okay. also we can also use flash on uh, non-metals, even even carbon composites, for anything that is um, thermoplastics, carbon composites, um, anything. Uh, surface and near surface damage. So this could be like impact damages from hail or from tool drops or something like this, or subsurface delamination sort of things, or any any sort of uh, very thin airfoils with foam cores and those kind of things. Flash works pretty well. It gives you a very quick and crisp sort of a response. But to understand that is also that um, on carbon composites or thermoplastics, there's a penetration depth limit to to flash because the the full energy our flash head, for instance, is six kilojoules. You can literally take the hair off your forearm if you don't watch out or peel back a layer of material and then remove the end out of the NDT. <laughs> and um, so you have to watch out with that. It's pretty violent, but um, it, it unloads the full energy of six kilojoules in two milliseconds. Wow. So that's great for creating a large delta in, in temperature, but at the same time, it's also not allowing that heat to penetrate deep into material that, that has a large heat capacity. So, so it, it, it spreads laterally and that makes up that that's the physics behind it that basically prevents it from, from penetrating deep. So that's when we typically switch over to uh, halogen because it's much, much softer from the heat input. Okay. You know, it's not that violent. And we can have the lamp on for 30, 40 seconds without significant heat up of the surface. It could be you know, eight, 10 degrees over ambient, and that's enough. Mm. We don't need more than that. Sometimes even two or three is enough. Um, and then, but we can penetrate deeper. We can get to five, six, seven millimeters. This is about the top end in terms of penetration. Depth. If you needed anything deeper, we typically at that point refer back to ultrasound, uh, X-ray, CT, some other method, because it's just, we have to recognize the limits of physics. We can't bend physics, at least not yet. Yeah. <laughs> not yet. You you know, the, the ultrasonic or ultrasound excitation, is that's an interesting one. Um, is, is there a particular material or materials where that works best? That's, that's my first question. My second question, can you use the vibration for like lock-in technique? Can, can you modulate it or is... Right. So... Um, ultrasound thermography or vibro thermography, as most people know it, that have some knowledge of this, um, has been, again, has been around for a very long time. It is great, typically, for finding delaminations and cracks in particular. Um, the simple technique, the simple or traditional vibro thermography is really just turning on an ultrasonic, it's usually a modified weld head, could be 400 watts, could be up to 2 kilowatts, and it's vibrating anywhere between 20 and 40 kilohertz, depending on what horn 
understand mm -hmm. what transducers on there and the construction of it. Um, the, there, there's some drawbacks of that. Um, you have to put quite a bit of, of ultrasound energy in it, and that's the really the only um, uh, non-destructive test method in, in under the uh, tomography umbrella that is not considered non-contact because now you actually have to touch the part. Okay. Usually it's just the camera and some heat wave through air on some level. Mm. Um, so it's contact. So you have to make contact with the part, which sometimes is, is a challenge. It depends on how fragile is the part. How can you position the horn? If it's a very complex shaped part, it's a bit difficult sometimes on the curvature to couple something in. Um, and, and then also the, the coupling side uh, is under a lot of stress. So if you have a brittle part, we have had some ceramics, the ultrasound energy can actually cause damage if you don't, if you're not careful. Okay. So then there's um, a more sophisticated version, which is lock-in fiber thermography. And that's the, the idea that you brought up is to say, why not combining lock-in technique with ultrasound? The challenge with that is that the ultrasound vibration is between 20 and 40 kilohertz typically. The, the problem is you can't lock in at such high frequency with a, a camera that runs 100 frames per second. That's a bit of a challenge. Yeah, okay. You know, and people that understand electrical engineering and sampling frequencies will understand like the Nyquist theorem and all those kind of things where you, you're supposed to have at least four times the frequency of sampling versus the, what, you, what you're trying to sample. Like for instance, if you're sampling a 10 hertz signal, you have to have at least 40 hertz to get sufficient number of, of points sampled on the sine wave. And that, that only applies to the true sine wave. If you have a distorted signal, that doesn't apply anymore. You have to have 10 times, okay. that, you know? So <clears throat> in these ratios, it becomes very clear that we can't run a camera at 100,000 frames per second to accomplish this. So what, what we do is we actually take, uh, uh, we modulate the output power um, of the ultrasound uh, in basically an, create an amplitude modulated signal where um, the, the amplitude modulation goes at a, at a lower frequency. It could be two hertz, could be 10 hertz. Now we can start to lock in to the changes in amplitude or the energy that's being put into the part while the, the vibrational component is still at 20 to 40 kilohertz. Oh, okay. Okay, so that's where we, where we lock in. And that's, I think we're the only ones, as far as I know in the world, I've not seen anybody else do uh, lock in uh, on this. The other advantage with that comes that since it's a lock-in technique, it makes it theoretically 100x more sensitive. You can now dial down the energy that's being put in. Ah, okay. So if you have sense. a very brittle part, you can bring down the energy and, and therefore not create additional damage if, yeah. you know, if you're worried about that on the, on the brittle part. For instance. So that's, yeah. Yeah, just, just to like add to that a little bit and kind of, um, you know, to his point, your input signal with the vibrothermography is extremely high frequency and the camera can't match that but with the right parameters like what marcus was mentioning about adjusting amplitude and you know you can adjust the period length and stuff you can kind of tickle out a thermal signal that has a periodic component that's more close to what the camera can pick up so just because your input frequency is you know insanely fast that heat accumulation the way that like I, i've seen this on parts like that are under the ultrasonic horn you can see the heat spot sort of glow and then go away mm. and then come up and go away and then that's that's a periodic signal that the post-processing um can pick out and can very clearly show you okay that's exactly the um the portion of that sample where heat is accumulating due to a crack or due to a void um where basically the friction from your input um, is accumulating heat and releasing it in a way that can be observed. Interesting. Okay. Wow. That's that's awesome. Um, I, I'm 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 curious because I've heard about again. I know I'm spending a lot of time on this lock-in technology, but it's fascinating. Um, I've heard of and I've seen customers in the semiconductor space utilizing lock-in in an infrared camera. Right. So what would the what might the excitation source be for semiconductor work, um, and how does how does lock-in work for that type of an application? A little different than a composite, right? Right. Yeah, and that's you know I hope our viewers get the idea of how versatile this technology really is for all of these different applications, mm -hmm. right? So semiconductors could include uh, solar cells like photovoltaics, 
that which branches into thin film, thick film, monocrystalline, polycrystalline, all this kind of thing. All of those things are possibilities. And then and then it goes into um, actually semiconductors in terms of the, the, the wafer levels semiconductors. So we have folks that do forensic analysis and failure analysis labs that look at why did this chip fail? How did it fail? You know, can we reproduce this? Um, they're looking at um, actually encapsulated components. We can sometimes see thermal effects through the encapsulation. Even. Um, and then all the way up to a complete functional uh, circuit board and, and looking for failure analysis there. Let's say you have a dysfunctional circuit board, sometimes just exciting it electrically and, and just pulsing the, the, the power can show you sometimes, uh, let's say if you have a shortcut somewhere, there may be a circuit board trace that's warming up that's leading to the, to the shortcut, mm. you know, or the shortcut itself um, heats up. So there, there's a lot of different cool techniques that you can use for that. We do microscopy on chip level where we can actually see the structures that are like a few microns. And you can see certain components, whether that's here's the memory location of that chip or here's a diode or here's this component or that component or the bus. Um, it gets there a little bit more involved. The question then becomes, is this a, a microprocessor that needs um, a finite amount of time to boot up, to light up certain things on the chip? So then you have to be creative with the excitation. Can you, you know, sometimes just um, exciting the, the VCC, basically the, the, the voltage supply to the chip might not be good because the excitation frequency might be faster than the chip can <laughs> catch up with booting up and doing things. So yeah. then you may just power the chip, but then you may be doing some logical excitation where you, you know, trick the chip into doing certain functions like reading a memory location. So you can, you can do a logic analyzer type approach where you exactly, you know, tickle certain things in the circuit and then look for the thermal signatures, which are ultra small, you know, and, and, and see if there's any abnormal sort of behaviors. And, and people that are familiar with, with the, the layout of the chip will, will know by the signature, like, is that normal, is it not normal kind of thing. Yeah. Know? Like we looked at uh, radiating, radiation hardened chips before that go into space, they're super expensive. They kind of cost $100,000 plus per chip. Uh, and they had, um, you know, they had issues with that. So they can look at, at things and, and, and determine where the issues are, which is super powerful because, you know, without, uh, this sort of technique, well, what are you going to do? I mean, you can logically try to test things, but in terms of thermal dissipation, mm. it's, you know, it's, it, and you, with, a, with this lock-in technique, you can really, really pinpoint down to the micron level where the heat originates, right? If you do this passively and you use just a thermal camera, you just see a, a, a vicinity of a region warming up. It's almost like a cloudy bloom of thermal, yeah, like a thermal blob, but that doesn't tell you anything if you have you know, a hundred thousand mini components in that area like that. That doesn't tell you anything. You need to know exactly where is that junction that, that warms up, you know. So so typically those things are typically excited thermally. There's some applications where you excite with a laser. Okay. <clears throat> you know, but but um, uh, electrically is is you know usually the, the go-to sort of a thing. You can even do this with a probe station and portions of the chip board, you know. And, and the technique or, or the methodology is the same as you described earlier about this modulation right. and then operating that the, the camera at that same frequency and just looking at the same like, uh, signal. Right, the uh, frequency, yeah, it's yeah, a frequency-based. Frequency. So what you're getting back from it is, 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 from a mathematical point of view, you're getting the, the real and the imaginary portion back of, of the, it's, it's an FFT, like a pass free transform yeah. sort of a response. I don't want to overwhelm <laughs> folks that are not <laughs> too, too technical, but yeah. um, so what you're getting back is basically um, you have the stimulus signal, which is at degree zero, and then you're measuring the response, something that warms up slightly delayed, Yeah. right? Um, it's basically coming in and creating a phase shift to the original stimulus. So you have that phase angle response which then on a pixel by pixel basis is, is converted into um, a, a contrast change in yeah. the image essentially. So you, you're making a phase angle visible by contrast. Again, it's, it's mind bending sometimes when you, it is. when you look at this stuff. You know what I mean? I'm still trying to wrap my head around this because when you're looking at the resultant images from lock-in, it's 
for a passive thermography guy, it's easy for me to just say, oh yeah, I'm looking at a thermal image. I'm looking at, uh, you know, the heat. Uh, you're not, it's not heat. You can't measure temperature from that lock-in imagery. Indi indirectly, yeah. What, what is displayed is not temperature. It's, it's basically a sequence of images. It's basically a temporal thermal response, but really expressed as amplitude and phase. Amplitude and phase, which is, <clears throat> when you make that transformation, is really when you're teasing out, if you will. Right. Yeah, that very small, very fine, you're eliminating the noise and all that background right. nonsense and looking at. But you can it, you can get very sciencey with it. You can you can essentially calibrate the phase angle to a microwatt or milliwatt sort of an output. So you can actually use a very high precision resistor. Yeah. Like a one ohm resistor or something like this with a 0.1% sort of tolerance. You can hook it up to to your power supply that you're modulating. And then you can you can modulate this and you can see what sort of a phase angle, knowing the voltage that you put in, and by Ohm's law, you can you can basically say what current is going to flow through it. You can calculate the the, the power dissipation of and it's hundred percent power dissipation. So you know how many milliwatts or microwatts it's it's basically, and then you know what the phase angle is. Now you can calibrate the system and then you can use that and, and look at any sort of chip and everything else, and you can say X amount of degrees of phase shift equals you know, 17 microwatts of heat dissipation. Yeah. And that can give you now valuable insights, you know, on a, on a, a quantitative level. And, and, and you can you can use that and, and calibrate the system that way. So you can indirectly measure heat if you will, you know, but a lot of people, I get the question all the time. It's like, oh, so, so what's lighting up is heat? Well, yes and no. It's a, you know, yeah, it's directly related to it, but it's not quite expressed like it. Basically, it's like, I usually try to emphasize that one result image, like if you're looking at a lock-in image, mm -hmm. you know, the intuition is that happened at a point in time, because we're used to seeing photographs, you know, that were taken, you know, a snapshot in time. These are actually result images compiled from sometimes hundreds or thousands of thermal images taken, you know, during the duration of the measurement. Uh, that result image contains basically pixel by pixel insight into what happened during that entire sequence. So not only is the image not really grounded in temperature, it's not even grounded in time. Yeah. So that's Excellent why, point. you know, yeah. it's it's yeah. a little bit, uh, it takes a while to kind of wrap your head around it. And like, we don't really have a physical intuition for like phase angle of like a frequency, you know? So we, really what it, I, what helps me to think about is it's almost like a graph. Like if I look at one pixel and I look at a graph of like, this is, you know, the temperature over time, um, you do that, you know, for a 640 by 480 image, that those are all of your different pixels, mm -hmm. and it just happens to produce like a picture. Yeah. That's essentially what it is. It's just hundreds of little, you know, little series data points, you know, hundreds of little charts behind every point. I think what's also that's a very good point. What's what's also constantly confusing people is they they look at it from a perspective of, like you said, it's an image. It's it's a what it really is. And and it is signal processing more so than it's image processing, but it's it's really combining the two worlds and they merge, right? It, which is true even in passive thermography, right? When when you look at something, it's more of a of a signal processing. It's it's heating over time. If you if you graph a passive thermal image over time or like a video sequence, and let's say you you're monitoring a, a, a motor, electric motor, or something warming up or something, and you turn it on. That is basically, uh, in, in a sense, it's more signal processing than image processing mm. because what you're really looking for is temperature over time. Over time. And yeah. here we're doing, uh, you know, a com complex math uh, on the image more from a, coming from the signal processing world. You know, FFTs are being used all over the place, and, and also with audio and everything all else. All over the place, right? Yeah. And and this is now a combination, which makes it even more confusing. A combination of image and signal processing, really. It's really signal processing on a pixel by pixel basis. I've been fascinated by this technology. And, and for those of you who are at my level, sorry, we're, Marcus and Nathan are totally geeking out here on this. <laughs> but, it, but the more I learn about this lock-in capability and technology and the history behind it, and, and also I was shocked to learn that there's actually what's called a lock-in amplifier, a piece of hardware that's used in the electronic space that right. does this automatically for you, right? It does all this signal processing and spits out. Those are usually the yeah. noise. Yeah. Those are like, usually single channel. Yeah. Imagine that now 640 by 480 times. By that, and that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, 
So if you're if you're intrigued by this capability, you want to learn more. I would encourage you go to the MobiFirm website, and and there is a knowledge base library there, and there is some great content on not only infrared non-destructive testing but also on uh, lock-in. In fact, there's a video there uh, by John, one of the employees here, that is probably one of my favorites when it describes how lock-in works. He, he really distills it down to a basic level, level for guys like me uh, who can understand. Um, but we're going to wrap up here in a little bit, but, but before we do so, I would be remiss if I didn't pick the brains of these two guys here who have been working in this space and just ask you some questions about, like, uh, you know, what are what are some of the trends that you see right now when it comes to active thermography, active testing? What what are some of the things that you're seeing out there? I mean, we talked a little bit about aerospace. I even led in with an introduction talking about the F thirty five strike fighter, and that kind of falls into that category. What what are you seeing, uh, Nathan? Maybe we'll start with you, and then Marcus. So what are some of the things that you're saying, some of the latest trends? And yeah, I mean, just because we have a relationship with so many different industries, it's easier to like pick out the commonality, like what, what are they all kind of asking at the same time? And to me, that's automation. Um, basically, like you have your result, you know, using the techniques we mentioned. Um, and traditionally, this is something kind of like a doctor reading an x-ray where you're looking at this result in the, and a human being has to make a decision, okay, is this a defect or not? Um, we're now at a point technology wise where we can start having computers do that um, using, you know, automated image analysis. Not only that, but also the automation of the measurement itself. What if you have um, a sample where you need to sample, you know, uh, 150 different points and you don't want a human being sitting there and also repeatability, you, you know, you need to be able to basically hit go and be able to repeat um, a very specific coordinated measurement of a complex part um, over and over again with different parts and you need to keep so it, more and more things are just becoming like um, you know data handling issues automation issues um, that, that you know we start to address with our technology fascinating awesome mr Jaron. yeah absolutely we, we have seen this over the years um, definitely um, the, the, the need for, for, let's say, in the aerospace industry, for, for ever-increasing inspections in terms of volume of parts and um, size of parts, where most other NDT techniques do not compare anymore. Imagine, I'm not sure if you ever stood next to an aircraft. You probably have. Have <laughs> 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 your backgrounds. <laughs> um, Boeing 787, almost entirely carbon composite. I mean, the wing, I mean, you can only appreciate the size of the wing when you're standing next to something like this. It's ginormous. And, and let's say we have to do a full-on 100% surface coverage doing non-destructive testing on the entire wing. If you're standing there with a the little ultrasound probe, I'll see you in four weeks before you have that covered. Mm. Not only that, but now we have the problem, well, did you really cover everything? Where's your reference? How do you know that you covered everything? I mean, they're starting to paint little, you know, uh, crosshairs or little little grids on it and figuring out you know so there's no there's no reference to the spatial where did i take the image everything is just like not built for for speed and, and large areas where thermography i can take three foot by three foot shots you know in a matter of seconds so i can cover this whole thing in a tenth of a time or better mm. and um, <clears throat> i mean that's just one of those things but like, like Nathan said, the, the need for automation, it, it's a difference when um, I've seen people move around with, with scissor lifts and taking and then manually manipulating the cameras in terms of repeatability, what he said. Um, <clears throat> now in manufacturing, they have gantry sort of systems, robotic systems, or um, you know these articulated arm robots or whatever that manipulate the cameras around. Well, so that needs to be automated because you need to follow the, the, the contour of the part and that's just the image, the automation of the image or measurement taking. But you also need to make, if you have 500 images collected, who makes the decision now uh, whether that's good or bad? Mm. You know, so we have the, the talking about image processing or post-processing now. If it's a very repeatable part, we can now uh, apply image processing techniques and actually find defects. Um, we can add uh, artificial intelligence to it and, and, and do detections to say, hey, 
you know, the other 50 images didn't look like there's something that's up here, you know, so, so definitely the trend goes heavily in, in that direction to where everybody's like, we need to automate this, yeah. you know, because it, time is, time is of the essence and, you know, and, and especially when you bring uh, the, the, the deglobalization that's, that's underway uh, because of the whole supply chain collapse during COVID and, and still going on and everything else. A lot of these manufacturers are like, it's too risky to, to produce at 15 places around the world. They, they want to bring this back into the U.S., but then the labor rates are so high, you know, you have to bring down the, the, the cost of inspecting a profit. And the only automation, I mean, the only answer to that is automation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so guys, one last question. When we're sitting out front of this IRNDT lab and uh, Nathan, you mentioned feasibility study and, and um, maybe you can just, as we wrap up here, why does MobiTherm have an IRNDT lab and what is a feasibility study and so what, right? What, why? Yeah. So maybe we can wrap up with that. Yeah. So I mean, like, <laughs> so basically, you know, a customer, if they're comparing different NDT solutions or they're just trying to better understand uh, defect presence in their part, um, they can send it to us for thermography analysis. They usually send us a sample and these are coming from all kinds of different industries, um, samples of all shapes and sizes. Um, and what we do is not so much, it, you know, it's not really a matter of just, you know, using thermography, broadly speaking, and, you know, showing them the image. Because like we've sort of touched on today, that thermography is a lot of different things. It's a lot of different techniques. Um, what we're really doing is comparing. We talk to the different excitation methods, you know, being suited to different materials. So what we do is we kind of try to determine um, a best case uh, setup, you know, what is the proper excitation source? What is the proper camera? Um, because, you know, there are different cameras, cooled, uncooled, long wave, mid wave. We need to find the right configuration, um, not just to find the defect presence, but oftentimes customers are working in cycle time requirements. They need to do it, you know, in under 60 seconds or et cetera. Uh, budgetary constraints mm -hmm. are a big one. Um, and so we, we kind of listen to all these different variables that they're trying to do and come up with, Basically, okay, this is what we recommend equipment-wise, and that's this is what your image, you know, results look like. Um, and then we start that discussion with them, and that that's really helpful for the customer to get a sense of okay, what exact hardware are we dealing with here? How does this technology work? And then once I you know set this up in shop, you know, how what's that going to look like? You know, day to day. Sounds like you're helping these customers uh, eliminate the guesswork. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's basically a, a built-in success guarantee, right? Like, we have a heightened interest to, to maintain our reputation. We want to make sure we're not selling expensive equipment to a customer that's then frustrated because it doesn't solve their problem. Mm. That's a very bad spot. I don't want to be in that spot. I don't want to have to take the system back. I, you know, that's just not where I want to be. <clears throat> the customer shares the same sentiment. They want to make sure, is this going to solve our problem? Can we detect the defects? And there's... This scenario sometimes where it doesn't work because again we can't bend physics not, not yet right not yet so um, that, that's that's really the reason why uh, you know it, it's a very uh, low risk kind of a way to to experiment with this stuff and and we learn a lot of times we learn still after years and years of doing this um, you know what works what doesn't work what works better um, just imagine. The decision of saying, hey, you know what, your application actually works with an uncooled camera. Guess what? Your system, we just knocked off $50,000 of your system price. Was it worth it? Well, I think so. <laughs> right? I mean, would I like to sell the more expensive camera? Of course I would. But if, if good is good enough, I'm not going to do that. And that's part of what comes out of the, the, the feasibility study is that conclusion to say, you know what, this works well. So let's go with that. You know what I mean? So that those are just one example out of many why, you know, certain things work with us. And we have we have sometimes we get samples sent that are quote unquote known to the customer. They're like, oh yeah, there's four defects in there. We look at this. There's six or seven they didn't even see coming. They or, didn't or an entirely them. new defect type. You yeah, know, we've seen that a few times where we're showing them results and they're like, you know, they're like, no idea what that is. <laughs> yeah, and, and so you start that conversation with them. Uh, you know, that kind of like relationship. Where now all of a sudden, like we are trying to answer a question, 
you know, we're sharing a question, what is this thing? And we have like the tools to investigate it. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking here in the lab and I see sort of that an ultrasound horn. There's a cooled camera over there. I think I saw an uncooled camera. There's light sources, halogens, it's like a xenon lamp. So you have everything right here at right. your fingertips to run all these different scenarios. Right. Essentially developing the recipe for the customer right. to solve their problems. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and I know I've already mentioned once before, uh, if you want to learn more, go to the MobiTherm website. But if you want to learn more even about feasibility studies, what you know, how do they work? What are the steps? How do you initiate one? That's on the website as well. So I, I, I'd encourage you if you're interested uh, to, to go there. And of course, you can always reach out to us directly Correct. anytime. Yep. Um, but uh, do, we a, do we have a Twitter? They tweet us. They tweet us. They at, call at us. They, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I think I think that wraps things up though for today's uh, episode yeah. of the Thermal Review. We covered a lot. Yeah. And we could probably break this down and even and, have. And we really just scratched the surface. I know we did. <laughs> you know. And that was the objective that right. we really wanted to just kind of introduce at a high level the difference between again passive and active thermography. Uh, introduce the different techniques and then talk about excitation sources and then also kind of what the latest trends are which is pretty amazing with regards to uh, the automation right right so um, thank you again for uh for joining us for this episode of the thermal review uh in our in our next episode and i i would encourage you to to, to join us uh we'll have another guest speaker with us next time actually jerry beanie uh, from Teledyne Clear. He's the Global Business Development Director there. And he's going to join us and uh, he's going to be talking about uh, some of the latest advancements in infrared cameras and how that's affecting our uh, IR NVT capabilities, some of the advancements and things that Teledyne Clear is uh, developing. Um, so you, you don't want to miss it. Uh, Nathan, please come back. You can. <laughs> sit in with us and learn from Jerry. Uh, please make sure that you subscribe to us, uh, to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify. And Nathan, any last comments, words, suggestions? Tweet us. <laughs> we want to hear, we want to hear your thoughts. See, uh, here's some, you know, let's get a conversation going. Send us your questions. Uh, we love answering questions. That's 90% of what we do. So, right. Also go to our YouTube channel. Um, you know, youtube.com forward slash monitor. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, educational content on there, especially also with uh, respect to NDT and other thermography topics. That's also another great resource. Awesome. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you to our staff, uh, Michael and Yadir, for uh, producing uh, our podcast uh, series so far and, and, and going forward. Take care. Bye bye.